It's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, can the books we read permanently change our brains, or at least impact our values over a lifetime? Two studies that used undergrads as guinea pigs attempt to quantify the effects of powerful books on our brains. Plus, the upcoming election night lunar eclipse and a Halloween asteroid. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. There's been a decent amount of research done into what happens to our brains when we read, what parts of the brain fire up, how the same parts that are engaged when physically experiencing something can also engage when simply reading about it happening, how brains react to reading in different ways depending on neurodiversity, and generally how reading can have positive cognitive and emotional effects. But Emory University psychology professor Gregory Burns was curious about the lasting effects of reading particular types of books. Specifically, Burns was thinking about the kinds of books that people say changed their lives, especially at formative ages. He points to Stephen King, who said that William Golding's Lord of the Flies was the first book to really affect him, and how the evidence of that is clear in King's writing to this day. But is there a way to see evidence of the lasting impact of a book on someone's psyche in their brains? This is one of the many questions that Burns investigated in his new book, The Self-Delusion, the neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent our identities, and the one that he focuses on in an excerpt published today in Literary Hub. Burns explains that, in contrast to transient alterations in our brains, things like a quick change in heart rate or skin conductance, he was more interested in long-lasting change, but that's much harder to study with brain scans. When he ran this study in 2011, a new technique had recently emerged, RSFMRI, or Resting State Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, a Resting State FMRI. During this, you typically scan a person for about 10 minutes while they simply do nothing. What the activity that emerges in the brain means during these scans is debated, though. Is it a default mode of the brain or evidence of daydreaming? A study Burns was not involved in looked at students before and after 90 days of studying for the LSAT, and even though they weren't actively studying while being scanned, connections within the frontoparietal resting network were stronger during the post-studying scan. Perhaps, as Burns put it, quote, the act of studying, especially because it had occurred repeatedly over days and weeks, resulted in a physical alteration to the brain itself, and these changes persisted into quiet rest periods, end quote. So could something similar happen from reading a book? Would it be possible to identify discernible differences in brain activity before, during, and after reading a book that had a strong impact on a person? To test the hypothesis, Burns and his team designed a study made up of 18- and 19-year-old undergraduate participants, who would all be assigned sections of the same book to read, organized in chunks and with daily quizzes to make sure they were actually reading it, and be scanned in a resting state for 7 minutes each morning for 19 consecutive days. But what book to choose that might have an impact on a group of 20 individual undergrads? When I try to think about the first book that really had an impact on me, the one that, to use the Stephen King quote from Burns, reached out of the pages and seized me by the throat, I'm not sure.
I was a voracious reader of chapter books when I was in elementary school, books like the Amber Brown series and the Bailey School Kids, all of which I remember pretty well. And around third grade, I devoured L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz series, and those definitely had a lasting impact. Baum's values on feminism, anti-violence, and anti-prisons that are hinted at in the original series stuck with me enough that I can often remember flashes from the books when considering my own values today. But if I'm being honest, the book that really reached out of the pages and seized me by the throat and never let go was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I am a millennial, after all, and in that exact sweet spot of birth year to be the same age as all the young actors in the movies, and roughly the same age as the characters for the release of each book. The final book in the series came out the summer before my senior year of high school, effectively closing the book on my childhood. Though none of us really want to talk about Harry Potter much these days, and other generations could largely care less, for a while there, as millennials entered adulthood, there was a bit of talk about the impact this massive book and movie franchise had had on us. Enough talk that one political science professor conducted a nationwide study to investigate the effect Harry Potter had on the millennial generation politically. Summarizing the findings in the introduction of Harry Potter and the Millennials, Research Methods and the Politics of the Muggle Generation, Professor Anthony Grzynski writes, quote, In short, we found that Harry Potter fans tend to be more accepting of those who are different, to be more politically tolerant, to be more supportive of equality, to be less authoritarian, to be more opposed to the use of violence and torture, to be less cynical, and to evince a higher level of political efficacy. They're also more liberal, with a more negative view of the Bush years, and they are more likely to have voted for Barack Obama for president, end quote. Ten years on from this study, we should probably say former Harry Potter fans, or fans of the book and very much not of the author, because the people sticking most ardently and vocally to the author's side these days very much did not learn any lessons about acceptance and equality from the books. But I digress. Without getting too much into the weeds of Grzynski's methodology, which controlled for many variables among fans and compared to non-fans to show at least a strong connection, if not any causation, Grzynski also brings up some interesting brain findings about how reading and media generally can impact a person's politics, as well as why the Harry Potter series specifically was so powerful for millennials. So first, a person might actually be more open-minded to new information when they're reading or watching media for fun, as opposed to actively trying to learn, due to their defenses being down. And this passive learning is part of why media can have such a strong effect on people's values. That's usually thought of as a temporary thing, but in the case of the Harry Potter series, the books came out over a period of 10 years, a crucial 10 years of growing up for most millennials, and were further reinforced by the movie releases, the development of an online fan community, and endless bookstore events and themed parties over the years. You know, whether you liked Harry Potter or not, if you were a kid in the early 2000s, your life was was pretty saturated by it. This repetitive reinforcement of values from the books had the potential to exert a spiral of influence on young readers, right around the time many of them were entering adolescence and beginning to interrogate and form their own values. Those formative years for us born in the late 80s and early 90s kicked off right around 9-11. As we all became politically aware, the landscape of American and global politics changed drastically. 
which also lined up with when the Harry Potter series took a sharp turn from mostly innocent kids' books to the dark realities of a world at war. Many of the usual effects of media consumption were on hyperdrive with Potter fans who grew up with the characters, further strengthening their identification with them. And as the fans and characters grew up, so too did the complexity of the text and the nuance of the issues within it. There are also a lot of ripple effects around things like these books leading readers to other books or leading them to make friends with fellow fans who had similar values and on and on. So the sort of political impact side of a book's lasting impact on an individual or even on a generation has been studied to a certain extent. But that was a political study. What about psychologically? Burns's study, which was conducted back in 2011, a year before Grzynski's study, and the year that the final Harry Potter movie came out, considered using Harry Potter as their text, but assumed that all the undergrads in their study would have read it already, and it was crucial that they pick a text the participants would be unfamiliar with. So after debating for a while, the researchers settled on Robert Harris's Pompeii, a historical fiction novel centered on an event that most people are at least decently familiar with, but which tells the story of an engineer in the final days before the eruption. There's plenty of love, death, tragedy, and it's rife for an evaluation of politics and values. The students were surveyed each morning before their brain scans on how excited they were about reading the text, and fairly predictably, excitement ticked up as they got closer to the climax of the novel. Here's what Burns and his team found. Quote, Given how excited the students became, I expected changes in brain regions associated with emotions, but that's not what we found. Instead, we found a network of regions organized in a hub-and-spoke pattern, with the hub centered on an area of the left temporal lobe called the angular gyrus. This region is known to be critically involved in language comprehension. This change in connectivity represented a carryover effect of the actual reading, similar to how a muscle feels the day after exercising." End quote. He goes on to say that events occurring in the novel were reflected in a change in brain connectivity, but changes in the temporal lobe were only present in reading days, and not during a period of post-reading rest during which the participants were also scanned. Now, as for lasting changes, ones which they noticed showed up once participants began to read and persisted during that rest period afterwards, the only network that qualified was the sensory motor strip. Not an emotional region, like Burns had hypothesized would remain active, the sensory motor strip occupies a part of the brain where tactile impulses enter and motor impulses leave. So what did that mean? Quoting again, One possibility is that reading the novel invoked neural activity associated with bodily sensations and that these activity traces carried over to the resting state scan. Pompeii is, in fact, a visceral book. The descriptions of Roman feasts and orgies and the showering of molten ash on the inhabitants of the city can make one's skin crawl. This explanation fits with the theory of embodied semantics, which says that the brain regions responsible for producing an action are also used to represent the action in your mind. In other words, when you read about someone hitting a home run, your brain unfolds a compressed representation of hitting a homer, and then uses your sensory motor cortex to simulate it. Similar results have been observed for the sensory side. In another imaging study, participants read tactile metaphors, including expressions like hot-headed, unbending attitude, weight matters, and coarse language. 
The simple act of reading these phrases was associated with activity in the sensory strip, suggesting that tactile concepts repurpose the same regions we use for physically feeling things. Literature immerses the reader in a world created by the writer. In many novels, the reader feels like they're in the body of the protagonist. This would explain the changes we observed in the sensory motor network during the reading days. End quote. To Burns's point in his new book, which is all about the neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent our identities, this was telling about how books can impact our own personal narratives. Although, as he points out, they only continue to scan the participants' brains for five days after completing the book, so unless they're all ready for an 11-year reunion scan, we don't know much about the truly long-lasting impacts. But at least for outliers like the Harry Potter books, we have studies like Grzynski's, which show the impact of a novel over time, not just on individuals, but potentially on an entire generation. Well, just a couple more things before I go today. If you've been keeping your nose in a book, it's time to look up at the skies. Coming on November 8th, much of the world will be treated to a total lunar eclipse. The last total lunar eclipse for three years. We won't get another total one until March 14th, 2025. Now, unlike a solar eclipse, when the moon blocks our sight of the sun during the day, in a lunar eclipse, the moon passes into Earth's shadow. In a total lunar eclipse, the moon is within the darkest part of the Earth's shadow, the umbra, and this creates a reddish effect, what some people call a blood moon. And seeing as this total lunar eclipse will be occurring on midterm election night here in the U.S., an ominous bloody moon might be perfectly fitting. According to NASA, the total lunar eclipse will be visible across North and Central America, Ecuador, Colombia, and western portions of Venezuela and Peru. The eclipse will be visible at certain stages in Asia, Australia, and New Zealand, and at every stage in both Alaska and Hawaii. You can see a full map at the link in the show notes. And also, if you live along a stretch centered on St. Louis, you'll be able to see a transit of the International Space Station at the same time as the eclipse. Check out the link to Christopher Beck's Twitter thread on that in the show notes for more. Then I made that joke about election night, but technically that's not true because the total lunar eclipse will actually be happening early in the morning of November 8th before most people are even headed to the polls. Totality will be from about 1017 UTC to 1142 UTC. That's 5.17 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time to 6.42 Eastern Daylight Time. So this will be an early morning experience. If you're on the West Coast, you're probably better off trying to stay awake until the partial eclipse starts just after 1 a.m. Pacific. But before the lunar eclipse on the 8th, we'll be getting a Halloween nightcap in the form of a massive asteroid passing relatively close by Earth. Now, we are in absolutely no danger, and the operative word there was relatively. Asteroid RM4 will be about six times the moon's distance from Earth. You won't even be able to see it with the naked eye, sadly. But if you've got a pretty souped-up amateur telescope, you might catch a glance on November 1st. RM4 is almost half a mile wide, roughly the same size as the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest skyscraper or about the same size as Didymos, the parent asteroid of Dimorphos, the one that the DART spacecraft slammed into earlier this month. So it's a big one, and kind of cool to be happening right after Halloween. But again, no need to fear RM4. 
All right, well, that's going to be it for me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.